0: We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped gum to teeth in your throne, tiger, without a little help, some guidance, and a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jaron Serf, and this is Here Be Tigers.
1: So the xenobiology was the one we tried last week, which was along the lines of thinking about why creatures would occur in the world, like, uh, and, uh, like how you think of alien creatures, monsters. Yeah. I mean,
2: we got into a bit of the difference between xenobiology, astrobiology and other stuff like that. Then I think we kind of flow at some point, we touched upon our favorite examples of as well as our least favorite, you know, and I think we dove into Avatar a little like, there's 30 minutes. I haven't bothered listening to it because I don't even want to. I don't want it to color whatever my thoughts are now. Since right I forgot. At,
1: at this point, it, it may be usable, but we'd be better off just starting. Yeah, from the beginning. I have no idea where it now.
2: picked up. And no idea where it cut off. Mm-hmm. So as good a conversation as it was, it doesn't exist anymore. And I
1: know half of it is a conversation about evolution that largely doesn't matter from a writing context. So
2: if that topic interests you, we can try it, or we can do something else.
1: I mean, I would be going with the xenobiology as my first pick, but mm-hmm. I, I don't know. yeah. Fair enough. I don't think microscope is, though, the way to do... No, um,
2: I would put that aside for now, then. So you go back and back. Maybe if we had
1: a board.
2: So just to uh, touch upon that, apparently the way it works is you... The one I would have thrown out, for example, and this is... We've established, at some point, people left from one side of the world entirely there was a mass exodus i have never written any of that i have no interest in writing any of it so i figured for an exercise in how to develop history of a story it's a great thing to play with because i'm not going to play with it i have no interest and it's medium long we could for instance have an a point b the thing happens people leave the b point is some point after that whether it's when they first arrive it's after first colony emerges who knows that would be something we decide upon and then what you do is you go around saying well this is a thing that occurred here in a major event this is a scene that occurs in the event, and as people flesh them out, you can go back or forward in time, however you want, as long as you don't move beyond the beginning or the end. Mm-hmm. And you valence each thing as either light or dark, in a sense, what's the tone here? You can ask questions when someone says, well, this is what I think happens. You can, you know, like we do in Dungeon World or the others, mm-hmm. you can say, here's what I'm thinking, and then we pry and go, okay, what's that look like, basically? or What does that sound like? Pa- you know, paint us a picture. And then once we have a, a good understanding of that, we roll around until enough of it is in out. I think it's a good one for say, like a defined period of time, an exodus, a uh, mm-hmm. vague, but you know, that you can give me to come up with people for stuff like that. The, the
1: creation of a city would yeah. be another good one. Creation for
2: of a city, the founding of the beginning of a war, anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that's something we can push for later. The other main stipulation is unlike the uh, four beats podcast, as you can see, I have no notes. There's nothing prepped. There's nothing planned here. I think basically our pattern with opening is at some point. The guest of the day prove they exist and justify why they're talking about the topic. Okay. So if you wanted to lay in from there, we can go. And then if you want to take a moment to decide or think about favorite examples of xenobiology or things that could have been done better or just for... I mean, technically, Dave is our reigning expert on...
1: That's only because that's the kind of thing I, I, I screw around with thinking about.
2: What about the thing in your basement?
1: Oh, you're not supposed to publish that or publicize that. Tom exists. It's time we acknowledge it man. <laughs> Look, I let him have his own podcast. What more do you want from me? W- was that to prove Descartes?
2: <laughs> if Tom can establish
3: that he thinks, will that mean he's real? Yes, but how would one establish that one thinks? Like, I could, I could prove I'm real real quick, but like, how would it even know that I'm yeah. actually doing this? See,
1: Descartes pulled this, this this fun little bait and switch because what he set up is the challenge of proving that he existed, but he also set himself up as the only judge.
3: Yeah. So
2: Descartes was the first solicist.
1: Yes,
3: and no, <laughs> but yes.
1: <laughs> He's only, he, he, he ceases
2: to be the first solipsist if he can argue against himself.
1: Yes. Descartes, I, Descartes is actually, in my mind, one of those examples, those perfect examples of, there are people who say, well, if you go back even 200 years, people don't think anything like you'd find yourself in an alien world. And there are people are like, it doesn't matter what time period in time you go back to, people are people. Sure. And there's a mix of both because cultures do change. And yet you can get an idea of, you know, people have the same sense data, the same. Descartes was a remarkably modern thinker who was really close to Newton's ideas. If he had just gone on a slightly different path, he would have beaten Newton by quite a bit. But at the same time, he also believed stuff that we would now consider to be absolutely insane, like the swirl, (laughs) (laughs) like The idea that a drum made of lambskin will not make a sound in the presence of a drum made of wolfskin. This was a a idea in at the time called Sympathies and Antipathies. Right. And everyone thought that at the time. And it's like the very idea that you could just go, hey, I've got these both right here. Bum, bum, bum. It obviously does.
2: Which is peculiar because in some ways you almost see the legacy of anima-based mythologies and religions in that type of thinking. Mm-hmm. that the spirit itself should persist within whatever is left of the creature.
1: And now we are back into xenobiology, which is precisely as I had intended. Right? Right?
2: No, I believe that was Tom speaking. <laughs> or perhaps it was Stephen Sockbuck earlier.
1: I mean, I have a sock right here. I could just talk about
3: that. Well, last point. is It, turn- it turns out that Hobbes is actually the first person to describe, if I were right, the second law of motion that uh, every object has an equal and opposite... No, both that every object has an equal and opposite reaction and that an object in motion stays in motion, and that an object uh, not in motion stays in motion unless acted by an outside force. That was not Newton. Newton no. totally
1: stole from Hobbes. Oh yeah, no, no. Newton put it all together. A lot of the ideas were around before. Again, Descartes was almost there anyway. If I'm not so,
2: mistaken, one of the least focused upon quotes from Newton, or quotations from Newton, is if I stand, if I and I'll bungle this, because it's been a while since I've had to pull this out of the back, shore, the far shores of my head, if I can see as far as I do, it's only because I stand on the shoulders of giants,
3: mm-hmm.
2: Which is something... You wouldn't presume him to be as humble in that one moment as he is. Not that Newton was a humble man by and large. No.
1: Well, it also probably has something to do with the fact of him being a preeminent member of the Royal Society.
2: And primarily focused with alchemy, Of course. Yes. So I guess this is a question to throw to both of you. When you think of the term xenobiology, what comes to mind?
1: Uh, well, uh, for me... Flat out, xenobiology is, is less a matter of the metaphysics of it. Although if you're in a significantly different world, that's going to play in. It's more a matter of the way that life could play out. It's different forms of biology. It is the different way things can play out. So for me, I, I I think I've heard people divvy it up in between xenobiology and, uh, it was, I think you mentioned astrobiology.
2: The xenobiology, which I'm not a scientist, but I believe the, contemporary use of xenobiology is meant to refer to things we've created that did not occur out of natural evolution.
1: Right. And that's not the way I think about it. I think of it as being things that are significantly different from from ourselves. And that's more, and I guess that's more a matter of like fictional and artistic you know. Technically alien life
2: would be for us, considered astrobiology stuff, life from the start. So right. From
1: but I also, I would also include in, in xenobiology things that are like very early offshoots yeah. of, of life that are really different from the way that we function. Ways so these Our
2: Cartesian test for the moment then, tardigrade. Natural or xenobiotic?
1: Tardigrades are also known as water bears. They're these microorganisms. They are animals, but they are Extremely tiny. They and uh, apparently, what the warp drives in Star Trek: Discovery
2: are powered on, which makes no sense because it's supposed to be some type of fungus, right?
3: That would be, in my opinion, xenobiology. I think if the xenobiology partially is ways things could have been. Okay, like if you just think of a ways evolution could have gone, because uh, then you just go, okay, well, look at the ways that they could have gone, the weird offshoots that happen. Uh, one example that, that comes to mind for me, and this is probably like, completely crazy, but, like, if, if anyone knows the game, like, uh, Parasite Eve, the way that mitochondria work in Parasite yes. Eve is, uh, you know, because mitochondria is power cells, so then they mutate to give, like, people these sort of crazy, crazy powers, or mutate, mutate, uh, dog, like, the dogs with, like, three-headed dogs, and then mutate rats to, like, to rip them apart. Those kinds, of, that's kind of like xenobiology to me. So also, like, just ways that weird
1: mutations can happen. Can
2: you imagine shit. how alien life on Earth would be if mitochondria had never... What are you showing?
1: Oh, I'm showing them target tardigrade.
2: Oh, Aw, see, they're water bears.
1: Yeah, they're... they're yeah. Its mouth wants to consume me. Well, there is that, but they're the actually hugs. pretty adorable beyond beyond that. But, but the wants to is, hug you with For, his for face. all that they look like six legged bears, they're actually like very very different in that they, I believe, if I'm getting this one right, they're so small they don't need that much of an internal structure. They don't have a circulatory system because everything that their their cells need can either be diffused from the area around them or from the digestive tract within them.
2: They can also induce some form of stasis that renders them largely impervious to most things Mm -hmm. that are dangerous to life, at least earth-based life. If
1: if you want a really complicated biological principle stated by someone who is at best an amateur in the field of biology, uh, there is uh, a concept uh, and it actually has more to do with embryonic development, but the way it plays out is is different. There, there, most of the creatures of the world uh, of the animals can be divided up into two groups: the the diploblasts and the triploblasts. Right. And again, that has a lot to do with how the embryo develops and how it divides into a group of two cells. I mean, of uh, two types of cells or three types of cells early on. But the ramifications of it are most of the the diploblasts essentially are very. Thin surface, the like narrow uh, sets of uh, uh, cells, such that they don't need any kind of circulation to 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 get nutrients. Jellyfish,
0: mm-hmm. di-
1: uh, diploblasts. The triploblasts have a complicated internal structure with you know organs and a way of moving oxygen and nutrients around the body because they need to because. You know, there's there's simply no way that your liver has access to oxygen.
2: There was a theory, I think, largely extinguished now that human embryos had to go through the preceding right. stages of life's development. Yep. Right. From lizard on, to all, or fish and lizard and on.
3: I swear I saw that by my bio- biologist. It's, talk. it's, yeah, it's, I, I,
1: it's. That's where I'm, dro- i yeah. i it's, up in the it's in called. My mind. I believe I'm, I'm going to get the words wrong. Is I think it's called ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny. That sounds right. And that's be, why we have flippers. The the idea was I mean, that we actually we? pass through these stages. And I think they, what they've said is. Uh, that no, the person who originally did the drawings sort of fudged their work and they're not as identical. We go through vaguely similar looking stages, but that's about it, and it doesn't technically mean anything.
2: Right. Anything humans descended from I always they have middle fingers. <laughs> I was one of those kids who, when I was little, loved dinosaurs and would write those awful long letters to the authorities of the time explaining why they'd named certain things wrong. For instance, why the was it the Brachiosaur and the Pelatosaurus? The Bronosaurus. There we go. Were the same species, or why they should stop putting the horns on the wrong part of the Iguanodon?
1: I'm going to be honest. I never understood why, when they realized they had the wrong skull on the Bronosaurus, they needed to rename it. All Bronosaurus meant was Thunder Lizard. Why does that change? Because the head now looks a little, you know, different. Not, biggest, not just a little different, but still.
2: The biggest controversy, I think, from the past decade, though, was that dinosaurs are chickens. Which I suppose if you've seen the it more recent Durac- if you've seen the more recent Jurassic World, they finally admit it.
1: But I- know, what what do you mean I don't like it? I remember you saying you didn't like that theory, that dinosaurs are birds. No, 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 no. I, I I I'm using it. was the Archaeopteryx. Yes. The um. Archaeopteryx was for when I was growing up as a child was considered to be the missing link between dinosaurs and birds, and actually what it looks like is no, most of the dinosaurs had feathers. Yeah. The Archaeopteryx wasn't anything special. It was still just fully a dinosaur. Oh, I just missed the Right, right, right. Yeah. I
2: think uh, one of it. the pivotal changes was a skeleton they found in one of the poles that had preserved with it, if not the remnants of the feathers, and the impressions in the surrounding material. Well, let's, let's and it was woolly,
1: well, more or less. You know what's really funny? Two fluffy dinosaurs. So when I was a kid, they were talking about how they, they could never tell what, what dinosaurs would look like. <laughs> You just want a fuzzy
2: Barney. Yes. With a downy Barney. <laughs> I want
1: you. <laughs> now it's in your mind. No, now I have to share like okay, an anecdote from from high school. So, uh, I had this one teacher and he had this little dinosaur uh, toy that you turn it on and it would walk about, you know, six paces oh, no. and it would go, and then it would stop and it would go <laughs> and then it would uh, start walking another six paces and go <laughs> So whenever, cause we, this was right after lunch, so everyone's got this in, in a food coma after lunch. So whenever the room was particularly silent at whatever he was lecturing on, he'd do this, this thing where he'd, he'd pull out the dinosaur and go, you guys are all like a, a herd of brontosauruses. Because, you know, brontosauruses were so big, and this is partially true, that it took too long for nerve impulses to reach their, their brains. They've actually found that uh, a lot of the really large ones had a nerve cluster. The secondary brain. Yes. Yeah. Precisely for that reason, or they think. And so so it just takes too long. So so you know, if something happens to the tail and he turn this thing on and it finished roaring, and he'd take this hammer and slam it down on the tail, <laughs> tail at which point it would walk forward about six steps, then finally stop and go, Ah <laughs> <laughs> How long did he have to test that on toys to get the appropriate reaction? <laughs>
2: In his workshop in his attic, the shattered remains of wind-up dinosaur toys. Now we know what happens to the land before time. They never um, made it. They found themselves in their attic. Your professor. Uh, <laughs> moldering away <laughs> dreading the hammer.
1: And now you have just invented a species from a story from an event. There,
2: And I've mentioned this, I think, on a previous podcast. It was probably the, oh, the one where we corrupted children's stories for colonization. <laughs> By the fellow who wrote The Life of Pi, I believe, is a story called uh, Beatrice and Virgil, about I believe one of them being a stuffed dinosaur, and the other maybe a rhino. This is a long time ago.
3: Is this the sort of divine comedy riploff?
2: To a certain degree, yes, because it is also an allegory for the Holocaust. And that's all I'm going to say because Stephen's face I have to put this up. <laughs> yeah, please see if you can find a summary. This has been a long t- it's been a long time since I was exposed to that. We're talking maybe grad school, if not earlier. So aging myself at least a decade. Mm. Well, since we've talked a bit about pop culture, what are your favorite examples of xenobiology done well or to your liking and done to the point where you find it either implausible or just curiously off?
1: Okay. I mean, done well, I'm a big fan of Wayne Barlow. He wrote a series, I mean, a book called uh, Expedition, and it's basically... There are problems with it, don't get me wrong. This
2: was the one you showed us during the first episode,
1: right? Uh, Probably.
2: Yeah, it's with the blumpy people and the computer people. No, that's Dixon. Oh, okay.
1: The the Dougal Dixon or something like that, Dixon Dougal, I don't know. But uh, no, this is uh, Wayne Barlow. He likes to draw the aliens. So so the two major works I, I remember that he's done are he's done Expedition, which is an illustrated guide to life on an alien planet, and the other one is he tried to do a an illustrated tour of hell, but a very <laughs> alien hell.
2: Was he perchance inspired by certain artists? I you'd,
1: you'd have to pull it up. Blake, but, for instance. Yeah, he had his own twist on stuff. young but, Martel, that's the author. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. found it, didn't you? Yeah. Okay. But the, um, I was trying to look up the story of
3: the book and no one will tell me. <laughs> <laughs> it's been banned from the internet. <laughs>
1: But uh, Barlow is very good for trying to, l- like, isolate the things that we find as natural or intuitive about, you know, life on Earth and deliberately go against yeah. those to make something more alien. There's a reason most of the creatures in his book don't have eyes, for instance. Oh, you've
2: shown us this one. Yes. There's the uh, tribe... He does a lot,
1: a lot of them, which is actually one of the biggest flaws with his understanding of biology, because he lumps them into categories based on how many legs, but he doesn't care whether it's, oh, we have two back legs and one front leg or two front legs and one back leg. And chances are, evolutionarily speaking, those aren't. Related.
2: I would love to see the square cube application to that. He,
1: he has an, a, a, an interesting one where like about half the creatures, they have one rear leg and it goes to the and then they grow this long keel that they drag themselves along on. It's bizarre, but it, depending on the, the situation of the planet, it might make sense.
2: I'm forgetting. This was, I'll use one term for it, which is close enough, genomic or genetic plasticity. I forget the actual term as it's used, but you see it applied a lot in anthropology, particularly evolutionary anthropology where they start to look at how flexible the human body form is depending on where a particular population yep. emerges. For instance, you have stereotypically the Maasai who were, to a certain degree, the thing's still largely quite thin and large surface area, they lose heat quickly for reasons that are obvious. They need to stay cool. Whereas, for instance, you have up in the Inupia and Inuit tribes, a tendency or predisposition to shorter stockiness because you need to conserve body heat. I think
3: that's phenotypic
2: plasticity. There we go. Phenotype is the expression of particular genes in a circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Malpass would be so pleased. Yeah. Mm-hmm. To give you an idea of this man's character, his grandmother was a Southern Baptist. She taught him the alphabet using a paddle, the kind that has the words on one side and the letters on the other. So that should you screw up, you can then have the paddle as your receiving lesson. So like, you
3: literally get it like... The, the How the many paddles did she have? You're like... Oh, he uh, I think he
2: had not if not the one and a few in his office as a reminder. He said of course didn't remain a Southern Baptist, but he kept her teaching lessons in mind. Practices rather. No. Oh, he was an odd he was an odd duck. Ken had him too. I think he could share stories.
1: If you if you want an example of what I think of as xenobiology gone wrong, I would go with and hey, we I get to hit both forms of xenobiology here. Okay. Prometheus. Ooh. Yeah. The black goo and the way it behaves is nonsense. Yeah. Isn't it effectively organic nanos? It's effectively plot device. It's effectively a wizard did it. Uh, it's, or, <laughs> or, or to put in, put in, or as I think I once described it, it is liquid science. <laughs> with
2: the exclamation
1: mark built <laughs> With in. the exclamation mark built in because it not once does it ever repeat itself. It always functions differently in every situation that it's in, which means you can get, draw no conclusions about how, what it actually is or, or how it works. So it has no habit or behavior. It, exactly. And so, and it, and it's specifically what it does to people that may, that is the xenobiology done wrong because that's the true xenobiology. First off, it's making them more alien and making them function differently. And B, it's very artificially creating life in a certain way. So So
2: um, would you say that Prometheus is just trying to interpret or reinterpret the shagath as an artifact of an ancient culture that is perverting the human norm away from its yeah. a priori yeah. existence or platonic ideal. Yeah pretty much I would so.
3: yeah. Thank so, you so. for thank you for like shoving in those those words that gets you know get me like agitated. <laughs> <you laughs> platonic ideals. And must be an The Platonic ideals of have you, xenomorphs.
2: Have, have you read by any chance? It's, I'm forgetting the guy's name, but it's to, it's to a seminal edition of the Mountains of Madness where the guy goes ad nauseum about the various manifestations of Lovecraft's xenophobia as expressed through the creatures he describes and what they do to people.
3: Oh my gosh, that makes too
2: much sense. Oh, Sheena Milv. Now
3: I have to read that edition just to figure out like this new, like, seemingly obvious thing about H.P. Lovecraft that he's <laughs> Well, the, the, he,
2: he just, the, the description of the Shagath in his mind is of the swirling mass of humanity drowning out the white man's existence. Uh, of course, you you know, he's also the, the, the fish man. He, he, yeah, yeah,
1: here's the thing. I have no idea if he's right. I know enough about H.P. Lovecraft that that sounds very plausible but it also sounds like you could be reading too much into it like if he intended that i totally believe but i have no idea he could have just been nuts (laughs) just straight nuts i'm gonna weigh heavily on the latter
2: although as the non-lovecraft expert here i would defer to ken who is the one who introduced me to him Mm. are you surprised at all by this Stephen? no
3: (laughs) So I have a couple of interesting examples that, okay. that I think are pretty cool. So one example I would bring up would be Tomorrow's Child by uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh, so Tomorrow's Child, if the who is not familiar with it, is one where humanity is, has evolved to a point where they, they have these machines that make pregnancy basically harmless, painless, really easy. But there's something about the machine that causes the infant to be born into a different dimension. So that to all intents and purposes from the human perspective, it's a pyramid with these weird, like, uh, uh, geometric eyes and geometric legs. And I think it like has like a circular, like it has like a, it has like a two dimensional, like, uh, clothing and, uh, and stuff like that. The entire thing is dealing with that and people still be like, going crazy over, over having this sort of like interaction with it until. I'm
2: not going to get the story away, but...
3: Non-Euclidean baby? Non-Euclidean baby, yes. So that's one I think is really interesting. In <laughs> <sort of way. laughs> baby. Would you
2: even call it Cyclopean?
3: Uh, and then another one of sort of weird Xenobiology, we'll more, more, towards oh. the way that, uh, more towards the way that uh, David was thinking about it, was um, uh, the Lilith brood or the Xenogenesis series by uh, Octavia Butler. Oh. Um, maybe,
2: yes, Dawn is the first one. Yeah, though. Dawn is the mm-hmm. first one, yeah.
3: Is and the one? that species, the, the O'Nalki. Oh, no. First of all, just their weird sort of like very different, they not quite, you would never quite get an image of them, but very like almost like Day of the Tentacle-esque. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then like also the way that they actually alter the DNA of the host species that they're, that they're uh, synthesizing into their new form. So they take themselves and the host species and they create a new... Um, form of their species. Right, because
2: they need a physical intermediary in order to reproduce. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, and credit to Gabriel Pina, who's the one who introduced me to Don and Octavia Baller, in that instance, it was to establish how to create an opening chapter.
1: Also, my my basic thought on that that alien species is that if the Federation ever became the Borg, mm-hmm. that's the kind of Borg they'd become. Oh yeah, they do assimilate yes. you, but they assimilate you through like like culturally and through you know like this
3: love, love with us. As, love as, with as, us. A, yeah. as as a tangent, actually that that book is a great example of like a species or, or a group like the Federation. Where we only have good intentions, meanwhile they're being like absolute
1: monsters. Meanwhile, they're, involved. for all yeah, intents things. and purposes, they are genociding the human rights. Well, yes and no.
2: Technically, they saved the remnants of humans, the human species from a nuclear holocaust, mm-hmm. cleaned earth up so that it could be repopulated, and in that time, took the main character and others in order to make them suitable for the new environment while benefiting from their
1: yes. new roles, and intermediaries, in their own reproduction. They technically, after a lot of persuading, allow a free human society That they control. know inevitably will be destroyed. Yes.
2: By a lot of persuading, but we're they shorthand Lord of the Flies is a chapter.
1: Yeah, yeah. but yeah. they weren't intending to do that. No. There weren't going to be humans left when they were done. No.
2: There would be something different. Mm-hmm. Which I suppose I'll throw out here before I go to any examples of mine. Do you think of John Skulls' The Old Man's War as an example of xenobiology?
3: Actually, now that you think about it, yeah, Yeah, because they're creating new, they're creating new human bodies and then they're, yeah, I would say. Both kinds. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Because the aliens are, he doesn't get very deep into how the aliens Mm -hmm. work, especially the fact that at least one of the alien species is an uplifted race. Right. Also, the fact that most of the people in that book are in artificially created bodies.
2: Right, and again, for folks who aren't familiar, the premise is that once you've lived a long enough fulfilling life, you can have a new existence and a new youthful body, provided you survive a new
1: war. Basically, humanity's out among the stars, but they're, they're keeping Earth as sort of a pool, a population pool, for two reasons. Basically, all of the underdeveloped nations, or the overpopulated nations, are the pool for colonists. For they, they will take them off of Earth, they will help them form new colonies in space, the colonial government, I mean. All of the developed, rich nations are the pool for soldiers who, because these are the ones so that everyone lives to, the, you know, the, those who live to a ripe old age and really don't want to die can sign up for the military, get a new body and be dead in ten, in within like two years because it's a brutal war out there. Reagan
2: foresaw the future. Hmm. And he did not choose that route. The weird thing... uh, Instead, he created old folks.
1: I I actually think it's somewhat funny that... uh, I Instead, he created Florida. I'm not entirely certain Scalzi had thought out his idea completely from the beginning, but he eventually turns on the entire idea and, and how nasty it is to be keeping Earth in that state. I guess
2: it's an interesting thing to encounter, particularly in most science fiction, because... Xenobiology either doesn't follow the rules as established or by the necessity creates new rules. And sometimes we don't per se look into until we're too deep in the hole, what that will mean for the story. Mm-hmm. So one of the examples I'll give is a favorite for Xenobiology. It's from the series. It's called the Coldfire Trilogy. I believe it's probably a couple decades old now by the author, CJ Shura, C-H-E-R-O-Y-H. She's written a few others too. I think her other is down below station or something like that. You know, primarily sci-fi. This seems at first glance to be a steampunk fantasy series and largely immerses in you in that, although there's a quick prologue that gives you a sense that something is amiss here. The basic premise is that humans exist on a world war. There is something called the Fae that changes according to will and reaction, including the human subconscious. One of my favorite examples of this, so I'll give two great examples, one I didn't remember until just now. A religion has emerged out of this in an attempt to control people's psyche so that there are Uh, Basis desires don't get the best of them. And I do mean that in a literal sense. For instance, the de facto Pope of the religion developed a hatred for all things Faye when his mother, who was a drug addict, was told by her doctor, that's going to eat your brains if you keep this up. And he came home one day and found her strewn on the floor with little strange things picking apart her skull and eating the sticky things inside. They ate her brains. Whether they would have without that idea being put into her head or not is left open for debate. But the prophet who founded this religion created many species that were as best as he could imagine close to human-like or earth-like, including things like the unhorse. They have an idea of what a horse is supposed to be. They know this isn't it, but it's as close as they can get based off of trying to take their unconscious memories of a horse and, f- and have the world respond with creating something like that, then breeding accordingly, hoping that eventually the planet they're on will get the idea.
3: I'm trying to remember. There was a, there was a book. This is, this is a great introduction talking about a book. Um, a book that I myself have never read. This is a book series I've never read. But it's, it's supposed to be this kind of like sci-fi almost horror about this group of, of, of people who go to this planet. Um, and on the planet they encounter this sort of maybe half machine, half organic monster that, but well, the idea is like, you know, so a Catholic priest goes and a soldier goes. Sure. Uh, and, and the idea is supposed to be that like, the, 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 monster, uh, this so, is, so there's so one thing that happens is that there's this, this thing called the cruciform and it can alter people's, uh, DNA. And so one thing that it does is it like, it takes like, it takes a priest. And I think what happens is like, it electrically like, knocks them to death and like almost like, a, cause it's the cruciform. So it's almost sure. like a, a, a cross. And that's what they thought it was. Of course. It like shook them to death. And then it like resurrects them and stuff. And so it's like creating new bodies and stuff like that.
1: Sounds like a mix of multiple things because my mind goes to "I have no mouth and I must scream." No, that was what I was thinking of. But no, it's
2: that. On, it's not Lords of Light by The Last Name, which also no.
1: goes crazy. Uh, speaking, of which "I have no mouth and I must scream." Oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. yeah, "I have no mouth and I must scream" is, is one that would be another uh, xenobiology one, if only because the computer. We never get an idea of, of what it no. is. We don't know if it was if it, if it was an actual computer or if it was something else. All we know is it has some weird control over reality and is constantly altering the... Someone needs to explain to me what the point of that story is. Yeah. Like, honestly speaking,
3: like, I know the story and I know what happens, and I still have no clue why it was written.
2: Moral relativism.
3: Oh, okay. That makes sense. Hmm. Never mind. Keep you, you going. The
2: dangers like, of... You see, like, you
3: can tell me any story was about moral relativism and the dangers of it, and I would believe you. <laughs> because they all are. Yes, right? in a sense.
2: It's the morality of the author and how dangerous it is. Yes! I mean, I, you do find a certain degree of morality plays in the law, this man plays God or yeah. alien comes to punish as a alternate form of what was it? When ta- an attack on Titan first came out, one of the abounding theories was that this was not in any way whatsoever a biological threat but a divine one. Right. These were effectively the apocalyptic Ezekiel style angels come well, down just to, because everyone was trying to the bring actual neon, neon genesis into it. There were no parallels from the beginning there.
3: <laughs> what are talking and the about? actual answer was dumb. Like the actual reveal of what it was was actually really stupid.
2: Yes, get, getting to xenobiology gone poorly. I won't delve too deeply into it, but we're all giant human eating monsters at the end. My most recent favorite example, which I have touched upon briefly in the first podcast, of course, and Dave is familiar with, and Stephen, I think we inflicted upon you briefly, was the thermonuclear power autocat.
3: No, I don't think you did.
2: <laughs> Dave, do you want to state no, no, you, let him try to guess what that is? Yes.
1: Yeah, oh, God. So I can't to... do it justice. <laughs> no, it's one of those oh, concepts okay. that's so overwhelming. Like, <laughs> I, I only can remember parts of it. <laughs> You've already let it die in your mind. No, it's, it's, it's so crazy. Okay, so
2: I will try to do this both justice and be brief. The premise is a world in which faster than light travel or universe in which faster than light travel doesn't exist. So cryosleep becomes the de facto means of travel. Okay. This results in communities across universe or across galaxies that function through lockstep.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Or I'm forgetting the exact term, but basically they synchronize their life cycles. Uh-huh. So maybe on the inner circle, somebody's only lived 40 years, but in the outer circle, 10,000 years have passed. Mm-hmm. Right. And there's a big fight politically over which time frame is the appropriate one to live on, because depending on when you're active, when you're not, you get access to resources, trade, et cetera, et cetera. The reason all this perpetuates is that one company owns the cryosleep technology. There is only one way around it. Mm-hmm. The, and I do mean the, because there's only one species that can do this, thermonuclear powered otter cat. It is a cat it is an otter of varying size and degrees that is capable of, through the magic of quantum physics, generating infinite heat and warmth, even in the depths of space and therefore can't sustain you even when you are frozen dead. This emerges at about a third of the way through the book when they go to a mostly-like place in the middle of the pipes and sewer structure of a aquatic planet and wander into some random shopkeeps and, lo and behold, thermonuclear-powered otter cats. And, of course, the purchasing and ethics of owning creatures, but it's super intelligent anyway, saves his life, yada, yada. I will not go further onto it because I have an upcoming podcast with a who, or no biologist who's going to have fun with it. I tried describing it in a number of ways, and then went, oh, that's what they are. No, I still don't feel better having come up with the summarized term for it. My problem is that I see why narratively such a thing exists. And I can even presume that, yes, in an effort to fight against the monopoly this company owns on the technology, you would try other means such as altering biologies. And they've shown that humans and other species have done this for whatever reason or means to adapt. So the possibility or the potential exists. But to your point, I think with Prometheus, why this?
3: Yeah, you, well, it's weird because, like, I don't think this is a terrible principle to employ. Though, the, like, social, just like anthropologically or sociologically speaking, the solution you're going to pick is going to be the most obvious solution at the time, right? We don't get inventions if you if you look at the the, the course of human inventions, you know, you don't get like inventions that suddenly veer off from established modes of thinking. You know, heat based power is something that has pretty much always been around to power objects and things. Like we don't, we don't just randomly try something different. We try to, to veer off of that kind of path. And so if you think about bad, you know, biologies, uh, one thing that seems to be obvious is that bad, you biologies are when th- there seems to be no good reason that this is the way that the uh, technology would develop. It seems kind of like, Oh, here's an interesting idea. Let's have people go this way. A- another thing to think about here is like, um, you take take why why is Island of Doctor Moreau such a such a really freaky story? Mm-hmm. And it's because H. G. Wells has a sort of sign of the times and kind of like how doctors were acting back then, and it you could see a mad scientist well, it acting is like rooted in
2: the presumed bioethics of that era, exactly.
3: And so if you think about it, what, when you see Prometheus, we sit there and we go, there was no point to any of this. Why Why would this be the way that you, you did things? And it wasn't even like you had a good reason for why the alien species was doing this. It was just kind of like, yeah. I mean, to take another example, I'm just going to keep listening out there. If you actually look at the lore of Neon Genesis, and please do not look at the lore <laughs> of Neon Genesis. Unless
2: you're under certain prescription medications or things you cannot buy in New York legally. Yes. Mm-hmm.
3: So the lore of Neon Genesis is that there was this progenitor species that sent out colony ships to all these various different worlds. And there were always one of each type. There was a Adam colony ship and there was a Lilith colony. Col- That's Lilith. Yeah. No, it was Lilith. So, no, it was Lilith. sorry. Yeah. It was a Lilith colony ship. And the problem with Earth was that there that, that somehow an atom colony ship and a Lilith colony ship both got crash landed on Earth so that they wanted to Combined with... I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. Wait, wait. But they,
2: Wait, hold on. Douglas Adams invented Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yes. Hmm. It's all about hairdressers. Yes. That's all Gendo ever wanted. Yeah. He yes. just wanted fashionable hair.
3: So, I mean, that, that's just another one, like, okay, you can talk about college ships all you want, but unless you describe what... And, of course... What's his name? He never describes what's going on. Uh, and a lot of this is just stupid speculation. It doesn't make any God, sense. Yeah. And all the really good xenobiologies are just ones where it makes sense. There's a logical progression. It, it at least makes
1: sense from the point of view of whoever made it.
3: Right, exactly. It doesn't have to make sense from a human perspective. So, Alienism could be fine. So, yeah. it has to be,
1: so actually, I've got a perfect example, because I'll, I'll say it the one way. And then, uh, um, because if you go just down the, the official line of what happened in the book... It doesn't make any sense, but Mm -hmm. you it turns out something else was going on that does make it make sense. So in the book, John Dies at the End, there's a parallel universe that was like ours, but split off sometime in the 1870s, 1880s, or something like that, when some weird biologist masters the technique of creating organic computers out of cows. That sounds even more ridiculous than I intended it to. But it, it's a little weird. But it's it's really gross, actually, when they get to describing it. it, it organic computers are horrifying and so it's not meant to sound weird it's meant to sound nasty basically his new technology kind of takes over and so by the time they get to up to the present in that reality they're well beyond our technological level but it's this all this organic computing technology and everyone's sort of this massive biological entity or or part of it anyway even if they're if they're not sure that they are. Now, that makes no sense. They There's know, no, words, no words, the internet with germs. It makes no sense that, that that anyone in the 1880s could make a leap forward like that. That is not the kind of direction anyone was researching, not the kind of thing anyone... That would be bad xenobiology. But what's actually going on is that part of the, the whole John Dies at the End thing is that it's it's one of those Lovecraftian works. Mm-hmm. There are beings out there of... Incomprehensible power. And I forget the name of the one in this one is, but he travels from parallel dimension to parallel dimension, manifesting in whatever way he can. And that was how he managed to manifest his way in. So, of course, since he has no bearing on on each, like, since he's kind of orthogonal to each dimension, he doesn't function within anyone's rules he wouldn't manifest in a way that would make sense. So it does actually sort of make sense in in, in that standpoint.
2: Because the argument is that the the pure alien nature right defines the manifestation. Yeah, mm-hmm. as it occurs in the, in the context of this particular story,
3: mm-hmm. I think it's why the the to go back to the comparison to H. P. Lovecraft, the Lovecraftian weird Prometheus stuff. Like if you thought of it as a Lovecraft story, it might be some sense to it. But as a sci fi story, it just doesn't well, make any sense.
2: Extensively, that's why Rodriguez didn't make the Mounds of Madness movie he wanted to, or yeah. was in the middle of, or not the middle of, but he was gearing up to produce. Yeah. He felt Prometheus would be too close. Because, of course, the Mounds of Madness presents the elder things as the progenitors of human society. Mm,
1: right. But, but Prometheus did such a bad job of showing it was one scene in the beginning that claimed that they were the progenitors, but it, it didn't, they didn't need to be. Well, it also had an alien Christ, which was the important part. You've got to shove that in there somehow. Right. Which, again, wasn't even necessary. And I think they already undid in the most recent I movie. But it, I was that to
2: explain it. how the resurrection could work, or was that just, hey, we're going to poke this in here for the sake of getting attention?
1: I don't even remember what the, what the whole thing was in the first place. Well, no, because the, the guy who was infected, this was the guy who was infected, right? Because he seems I to be dead and then so, comes yeah. back. But he's still crazy, and he does nothing in the movie from that point. So they really did just jam it in there, or they cut out whatever scene made it make sense. They cut out a lot of scenes. Here's a little peek into it. There's not a really good reason why when they wake up, the the Prometheus, the alien, he gets all angry and starts attacking them. Apparently, in one of the cut scenes, he had been infected with a xenomorph. And the re- and he was in stasis, and that was keeping him alive until his people could rescue him and remove it. He, they basically killed him by waking him up. That's why he was angry. Of course, for that to work, they'd have to have cut that entire thing at the end out about the black goo... Somehow, having created the first xenomorph.
2: Honestly, going to Strange Alien Planet, awakening that which should not have been awakened, finding out it is furious at you because you have now doomed it to die, and trying to make sense of that as it tries to destroy you with its immensity of power and existence, is all you need for a horror film. You can give glimpses to, oh God, this is what created the aliens? It must be horrifying.
3: was For me, it supposed to be a horror film?
1: Sort of, kind of, maybe. Not really. I,
3: I... yeah, I mean, I where is on that? Well, it, where it's a
1: comedy. It occurs to me since we're currently releasing uh, over on Outer Worlds, we're releasing the Monster of the Week game. Sure, it occurs to me that a, a great season, cam the seasonal, not seasonal, but uh, you know, series of games from Monster of the Week would be to to set up a series of monsters where the main characters sort of had, had or the entire reason the monsters are even attacking in the first place, like that they woke them it up, and now it's going to die, mm-hmm. like. The main characters, and to try to figure out a reason why that would happen, other than the main characters just going around hunting monsters. Like, imagine if it was, say, Scooby-Doo going around and poking their heads into these mansions and messing with things they shouldn't have messed well, it with. It could be something
2: as simple as we're going to collect biological samples on this planet of his life. Mm-hmm. Oh, that looks like something we should bottle. Oh, crap.
1: That's not a bad... I, but you, I could, you could adapt Monster of the Week. To a bunch of, uh, to a, a semi-Star Trek, we're poking our noses into the life on this planet or this because planet.
2: the horror, again, was both the, in, well, Lovecraftian sense is that man's existence has no meaning. And also, there are some places you were never meant to be. Mm-hmm. And then out of that comes the punishment or the consequences of disturbing that we should have left sleeping.
1: The amusing thing that, that never really is gets off. tackled. Cthulhu is, is far beyond us, but the outer gods are far beyond him. And he's... Sure. I think they sometimes refer to him as the great priest of some of the outer gods. Right. But if he does that kind of thing to us, right, then they should naturally do that to him. And then you could, then your mind goes, Oh wait, maybe they already have. Maybe that's why so he is what he is. Of,
2: of of alternate Cthulhu's. Cookie
1: thulu or Hello Kitty thulu. Hello Kitty Thulu. No, what was the what was the there was the not the Hello Kitty one. What was that one I saw recently? I cannot for the life of me remember.
2: Oh, we'll post it later. Yeah,
1: it was like one of the various plush toys that came out.
2: We, years ago, we found for Ken, a, I think one of the initial uh, Cthulhu plushies, and gave it all the ribbons to make it a Hello
3: Cthulhu. I definitely appreciate this.
2: Yeah, I think he still has it somewhere. It's along there, along with the handmade ninja action figure I found for him in a bazaar in Melbourne. I don't even know who it was. It's fully articulated out of silk and twigs and everything else, but it's an action figure ninja. Stephen, we know your levels of joy are astronomical. They just don't exist on this plane.
3: Exactly, I'm like Cthulhu. But I <laughs> to your students, obviously,
2: <laughs> devouring their minds and introducing them to madness they cannot escape from.
3: I hope I'm just turning them all crazy. At That's the end of the what's day.
2: required for an A, isn't I it? Think, I
3: think I'm actually required to bring them to the relativist stage. So there's this whole, there's this whole four level grasp on college, right? You start out believing that there's some absolute truth and then that one goes away, easily defensible truth, and that one goes away once you keep showing people that all their arguments have flaws in them. And so they're like, oh, there's no absolute truth, so now we must be relativists. And then the third stage is to go, well, it's not that there's no absolute truth, it's just it's hard to find. And so we can have clear, well-defined well, positions you, that we think are true. What shouldn't.
2: you're trying to get to is the ultimate point of college-level nihilism. If nothing matters and everything is permissible.
1: So now we're... Assassins. Now we're, we're all assassins, and we all know how that <laughs> we, works. We right. all become drunk. Uh, to, to go back to comparing Prometheus to uh, Lovecraft, Lovecraft, there it's interesting because Prometheus very clearly doesn't work. Xenobiology is terrible. Sure, Most people don't throw that accusation at Lovecraft, partly because it's sort of built into the world it's supposed to be beyond comprehension. Uh-huh.
2: Well, it's funny, too, because Lovecraft is preceded by one of the other, you could call them xenobiologic style writers, Dunsany, who writes primarily about the fae or his own alien world of Pagania, that is both in the mentality of the things that exist. I think the classic one is The King of Elphin's Daughter, which is a fairy tale in premise, but is more or less a youth wandering to go into a far alien territory with no sense of how the world should or could work, and no means by which to expect that what he does will have the results he believes they should. You could argue it's science fiction now, and to a certain degree, the Fae, by and large, don't conform to our biology or how we expect the world to function or exist, or they alter it to the point where it's not recognizable. At least that's what I've seen from the better depictions of the Fae as opposed Mm -hmm. to the ones that turn them into either the monster to slay or other just mundane... It's weird. I mean, you end up with a point of urban fantasy where to make things relatable.
1: I, I always find that the best way of depicting the Fae is to, instead of focusing on how they work the way they work or trying to explain them in any way, is to isolate like just a couple of things that have to be true about them, you know, that just are, is to define them in actually the tools of storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think that's why a lot of games that tackle the Fae often do that. They will define them less by anything concrete and more by their role in whatever story they choose to be a part of.
2: In essence, one of the bigger divisions I've seen is that if humans are beings of conviction, belief, or truth, the fae are often designed or defined then as beings of happenstance or existence. If you can convince them that something is or should occur, they will work to make it happen. It's almost a reverse logic to ours. If that's the way things are, then we should make it so they always will be this way.
1: There was a short story I read once that was a very interesting uh, little turnabout. And it was basically, it was told from the point of view of this alien ship mm-hmm. that was and it, it, uh, on the planet. And it was moving around, uh, around Earth, trying to find isolated people and buzzing them or abducting them or making them having memory problems or stuff like that. It was, like, it was entirely about aliens except that over the course of it, you realize they're taking this dead seriously. It's not just a science experiment. They're deliberately trying to do these things to humans. And then there's the the chance encounter where they don't get one who's as isolated as they think and someone else sees them. And all of a sudden the ship is starting to dissolve and they're crashing down as they try to speed away. And it's actually better done than I'm going to make it sound. But the basic idea is it turns out These things aren't alien; they're fae. They're just manifesting in the in the best way that humans can deal with them right now because they can't manifest any other way. They're limited by the way fairies
2: don't exist, but aliens could be real. Therefore, in order to be perceivable,
1: Mm -hmm. you present as aliens, but they can't be too perceivable. They can't because humans think in too concrete terms, and that's that's anathema to them. At the same time, that it's what they need.
2: then belief itself becomes the iron that defeats them.
1: Right. And, and that's exactly what's Once happening. Once they are defined, here. they are limited. It's worth noting that the one of the last lines, uh, of the captain as the ship dies is we should never have created these things, which is a fun little turnabout of the, the fey human dynamic. It's a great way of finding a place for the Fae in, 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 the story is the fact that, you know, you don't have to limit them to be the Fae. You have to, it, it, they, they occupy something different.
2: And I do think there's something appealing in fiction about the being that is almost like us, but is fundamentally or intrinsically different. Or
1: appears like us. Right.
2: That we, can't, we can only perceive that much of it.
1: And that's, and by the way, that's probably why the Fae, the Fae are what they are if, in stories. Because there is another kind of thing in stories that often manifests a lot like the Fae. And that's the undead. It's the same deal. They appear human, or something that stole your friend's skin and is appearing and mouth ma- like and mouthing words, like and repeating whatever you just said. You and know, if
2: you tried introducing your students to the Uncanny Valley,
1: no, nope, that's a great idea. Yeah, and, that are, yeah, yeah, and that's what the they are too, and the and the undead. What ends. I almost imagine
2: yeah. is rather than present them what it is give them the example, and have them then try to preside reasonable arguments as to why they're reacting the way they do. Then you can show them Hume afterwards.
1: It's not a bad idea. Yeah, You just need to look up Japanese facial facial robots. I think
3: one of, one of my favorite things is uh, from the Exalted series. There were the, um, I believe it was the Abyssal Exalted, but I'm not positive about it. But there were these groups that could go in one of two directions. One is that like this, there was always a choice about how your character would develop and as they got more powerful. One direction was that as they, as, they, as they got more powerful they would get uglier and uglier and uglier.
1: It's because they were taking on more and more of the energies of death into them. Yeah. Sure. And then the other one was they would, get more,
3: they would get more and more beautiful, but they crossed the uncanny valley to this point where it was almost horrifying how, how, mm-hmm. beautiful, how beautiful they were.
2: Going back to the ambivalence of the terms, the numinous and the awful You can be full of awe and still be terrified. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. For me, the best encounters of things, monstrous or strange or alien, evokes that in the narrative or in the experience of it. That as comfortable as you want to be in the moment, you fundamentally find yourself unable to, and I think to a certain degree, unable to explain why.
3: Yep. I think that goes back to the, going back to the Ray Bradbury child, child*. I think that was the thing. Like, if you read it, it's just very uncomfortable and it's just so different that you don't even know what to do with it. That's the only thing you hear through the whole thing. It's just like, I have no idea what to do, what to do with what I'm reading right
2: now. Yeah, an analog of that would probably be The Handmaiden's Tale, which is not xenobiology per se, but xenoculture. culture. Mm. She argued, it's not that I came up with this per se, it's simply that I took things that have been done yeah. by humans before and allowed them to exist together. Yeah, and that, accentuates how horrifying they all are. We've done all of this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now we're horrified, which is probably at a deeper, more existential level, a thing that should be terrifying itself. Yeah. This bothers us now?
1: Well, what's the alternative? That it never bothers us? Might the any worse, but...
2: Exactly. That's part of why I think she pushed for the tale, to be told, and why it resonates so much, because we're at a point culturally where we want to express what is uncomfortable to us and we have the means to do so with very little filter. But we spend a, a good deal of time on the, I suppose, the precepts of what defines or allows one to perceive is in a biological being and make it seem reasonable or plausible. For me, as a writer, the thing, and as much as I focus on the rules and all this, when I write, as you know, I don't typically plan in advance. It is, oh, This is where the story is going. This is what emerges from the narrative. Why does that exist? Why is this a thing in the world now? I don't per se have the evolutionary charts of, and I'm going to try to figure out a way to describe this now, but are you familiar with the Portuguese man of war, how they can form flotillas in the ocean? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I'll give you a creature and what it does, and you tell me what you envision. Okay. At least in its adult form. Sure. As an adult, It needs to survive in photosynthesis and by and large needs as much exposure to the sun as possible. Mm -hmm. And in its nymph form, it lives in the ocean. So I'm leaving out something crucial because we did this once already and it's lost to the ethers of time. But So go from nymph cycle in the ocean to adult life in the air. What does that look like? What does that emerge as? What do you see?
3: It's got to be some sense in which... There's got to be a good reason it's leaving the water to go to the air, like some kind of sort of thing you can't get from the water that's going to get in the air.
2: Dave, you're welcome to chime in if you have I mean,
1: you can go with the sunlight thing that it just needs more and more unadulterated sunlight, so it needs to get higher and higher. Um, Right,
2: and obviously to get higher, it needs to have more buoyancy. mm, Yeah. So how is it creating that?
3: One thing is, yeah, it might not even be flying as much it might be floating. That would increase, increase the buoyancy. It just and require itself. less energy expenditure. And energy it's putting itself less and less dense. So so it's, it's the ocean, then it's on top of the ocean and that and that's pretty much just making a gas.
1: The hydrogen would be yeah. the most obvious. Yeah.
2: Right. So basically you're looking for something that in its adult form is by and large almost like a large, almost a dispersed molecule in yes. its form.
1: There is one other thing it could be. Go ahead. I, I don't, i, I I'd have to crunch the numbers to see if this could actually work. The basic idea of a hot air balloon, that the interior gas is hotter than the exterior, if these things are of the right, have the right qualities to the membrane, they could be trapping heat inside the gas, mm-hmm. inside of them. Mm-hmm.
2: So, for instance, if it could contain a certain amount of plasma to it,
1: mm-hmm. Well, it it, does, it could just be regular air. Sure. It just has to be significantly warmer than the outside
2: air. I'll give you the name as it emerged in the context of writing. The Sanoa as in an abbreviation of Susanoa. Inappropriately named God of Thunder and Storms and Other Mischief in Japanese mythology, Shinto mythology. Dave, I know you've read somewhere that they'd come up with the appellation inappropriately, or else it mm-hmm. was one to later. But he's the troublemaker in comparison to his sister. Also
1: closer to the origin of the Japanese kingdoms, though. Yes. He's the one more associated with humanity, The one who
2: slew the eight-headed dragon, Orochi, or Yamada no Orochi, the eight-headed dragon, saved, uh, got it drowned on Saki. The creature was first known in that part of the world, or the analog to it. So that appellation came around, but then I started wondering, well, what does that actually look like if these are the traits ascribed to it? Mm. If it is a thing in adult form that seems to bring with it storms? Well, how would it get to the point one word is up in the sky, and why would it be generating or encouraging that type of climactic behavior and in the world, there are two things that are known whether and how they occur to be people' guess, but there are those who are full of fire and those who dream too much in both the figurative and literal sense. Pablo had some ideas as to as to Dave why that is true, including genetic engineering gone terribly terribly wrong, mm-hmm. and for instance, in pablo's argument, the being full of fire being a consequence of The breakdown intended not working as it's supposed to anymore, since there's no means of regulating it. So as opposed to just slow burning out, there is a fantastic flare out. And if that's allowed to continue, how does that life evolve? By the same token, if things existed that needed to sustain themselves on sunlight, what's the best way to get exposure to that? Certainly plants and water, but why not live in the higher atmosphere itself? And you end up with something... Visually, the first thing that came to mind is either like a hybrid between a man of and a whale yeah. in terms of scale, mass, but closer to the man of in terms of distribution. So, if it had a carapace or other type of shell-like membrane in its nymph-like stage, effectively that would thin. It would become more cell-like and/or large cells in the structure to the point where it's basically a thin shell membrane, the shell, the cells, and then enough probably to pass the energy along through it. For instance, the lightning or plasma would be a side effect of absorbing too much. Right. What happens if it gathers too much energy? Right. It spits it out, the, thus the storms. And then I wondered, well, if there's a life cycle to this, what is it doing in the nymph stages, or what would that be perceived as? Would they be seen as the same creatures, even, if folks perceive only
3: saw portions of the life cycle? Yeah, it doesn't sound like they'd be perceived as the same creature, unless, like... I mean, it might still be, well, it could still be discharging under water. Mm, it could but be, right.
1: but but the thing is, if it's not building up enough,
3: I mean... It's not really going to be. Yeah, yeah, but if it's smaller, it might not be as much to build, up, to build up before it needs to discharge.
2: So this is where I started to think, one of the arguments or the myths believed is that those full of fire were given it from the sun. Mm-hmm. In a sense, if they can give off the same or provide the same energy in a smaller form that the sun itself could, would not the nymph forms gravitate toward those individuals? And if that's the case, like humans do, we tend to domesticate species that have a use to us. Uh So uh, the second episode, Ken and I were talking about one of the religions or cultures that is largely formed around the training and education of these individuals and how they fit into society from early days of, well, obviously being type of manifestations of spirits or other divine entities to, well, they exist in the population, they're dangerous, and we need to make sure that that hazard is regulated or limited. I started at one point writing a scene where they are effectively using nymph-like creatures as a kind of bloodhound. They would naturally be attracted to those who unwittingly or not gave off that type of energy. Then the question becomes, if you domesticate the species, how does it change? Did they seek out these individuals prior to them being domesticated? Was that a habit witnessed in nature? And then did humans go, oh, that's useful. Or did they eventually, over generations, make them more inclined to desire that particular source over others i don't have an answer what sounds more interesting to you
3: i do like the idea of the sort of um genetic modification or something like that you know like not not in any sort of weird technological way but just sort of like convincing the creatures to to desire that particular habitat more and more
1: it also makes sense it depends on when they become capable of reproduction Are they only capable of it when they start getting significantly high up in the air? Sure. Or is it earlier than that? Because if it's earlier, if it's at a a size when humans might be in control of it, there's a lot more potential for things to drift. A lot more potential for humans to. Because otherwise, you know, you basically just have the ones that were raised among humans and the ones that weren't.
2: And it's interesting, and camels are a great example of this. They don't, at least from the cultures I've traveled in, Particularly in Aust- uh, from, I think, the Afghan populations in Australia, they typically caught wild camels to breed and then gelded them because what they found is that camels bred in captivity from captive ones were not as healthy and just did not have the same will to them to work or persist. And so that was their adaptation. They figured, okay, we have to always bring in these fresh genes and work with that broader pool. So I could see the argument for if the adult form in death spores out, mm-hmm. like you do see in certain forms of jellyfish, they're the one they're having problems with in the Pacific Ocean now, where if you slaughter them, their defense mechanism is to release a whole new generation plus. So you kill one and thousands more are flooded into the ocean. You could see something like that. Or, to your point, maybe they do have some type of cyst-like or, pre- or pre-nymph-like stage. Egg is the wrong Well, term, here,
1: here's, a, here's a start. Okay, um, go ahead. Maybe the issue of what they search for depends a great deal on where they grew up. Maybe humans like bring down, like find ones that are dying that have lost their ability to float. Sure. and they collect these cysts and so then they, they raise them no longer
2: buoyant, or they lose their buoyancy in their last stage of life.
1: Right. And then they take these cysts that are going to become, and they raise them in specific conditions. I mean, the very obvious way, like and possibly too obvious, they raise them right around an actual fire.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. So that their first source of food is the thing that they're most, you want them to seek
1: out. And so it's not that they naturally search for people. Maybe, maybe, maybe maybe some of the, the, maybe some of the wild ones kind of do, but they might get distracted by something else too. You know, like a thunderstorm, like a, like will o' wisps. We have no idea what those are or even if they exist in your Mm -hmm. world. But these raised around fire and people Mm -hmm. search for both.
2: I guess here's the question. Maybe, Stephen, you'll want to tackle this. How intelligent do you think they are?
1: I don't see them. At least given the way that
3: you're describing the creature, I don't think there's lots of room for intelligence. So how it seems do like you a ganglia, maybe, style creature, right? You know, Because if, if their basic thing is they're going towards collecting energy and stuff like that, I just don't see the room for necessarily meaning very much intelligence. Mm-hmm. Like Intelligence is an adaptive trait. And so far, what it seems like is they, they go in the ocean they float war- war- war towards the surface and they float to the I just out of curiosity, do you think maybe there is in
2: the nymph stage a greater need for it, and then as they stand yeah, out, perhaps as the neural network becomes far to the point, yeah, of, as we discussed with the uh, the, br- the brontosaurus, so when they become massive enough and the source of food is deficient enough
3: that
1: yeah,
2: there's no longer a need to be awake. In that well, especially
1: sense. if the young ones
3: actually hunt. Yeah, sure. I don't, I don't kind of see it. Kind of like I was. I was thinking. Kind of like the the zerg. Like things that flew around. And, oh yeah. And, and like it don't need to have very much they, intelligence to do what they're supposed. No, to No.
1: I mean, although those, in fact, did. But yeah. No, they they themselves didn't have much. Well, like, other than but they extended the range of the mind. Yeah. Hive yeah, mind or yeah. the
2: the nymph ones I saw. This will seem strange, but imagine I'm forgetting the name of it. But those early plated fish, just instead of. The full structure of skeletal and whatnot of the fish, mostly jellyfish architecture, with a casing at most to prevent damage to the nymph-like form as it goes through that. I suppose metamorphosis. That, that
1: could be why the old ones die and fall because they're growing the plates again, and, they, and, and because of them the down. of the new cysts. I see.
2: So as they're forming, what will become the new generation, it, bo- it pulls them back down with gravity, mm. swimming earth. That weird and.
1: And it begs the question of were these engineered in the first place or did they come about naturally? If they were engineered, it's entirely possible that they were engineered for the adult forms. Sure. And in fact, we never supposed to exist in nymph forms or not in any serious way. Because no, so they've they, been, they'd, they'd, as they'd as been grown in a lab. You know, say, yeah, something like that. They've would they'd been engineered. They've been grown in controlled conditions, etc. And then when they were big enough, they'd join. So whatever the, the adults are doing or trying to do sure. is, the, is the overall purpose. In which case, the nymphs having to hunt is a complete accident.
2: Basically, as the means of their creation faded, Mm -hmm. and as the sources that could provide life or energy for them diminished, the only things that survived were the ones that allowed themselves Mm -hmm. to, or that reproduced and created, Mm -hmm. that moved to a different form of reproduction. I wanted to use it as kind of an example of, As much as we're talking about the rules in a, Mm -hmm. yes, you should plan, you should expect, these are the experiences the reader should ultimately have. The actual process of working through why such a thing could exist or what it does, even the basics of what's the reproductive Mm -hmm. cycle. Yeah,
3: but I think one thing that's emerging from this is that it's fine to let these things grow organically because I think if, if, if the goal of the xenobiology is to create something that's, believable in a certain context which means it makes sense to the people of the time period Right. the, the sort of circumstances of the world shape what the thing looks
1: like as long mm-hmm. as it's coming from the world it isn't just kind of right. put in there by author fiat and, and if the origins are lost in yeah, time mm-hmm. you only have to partially have it make sense you have to have it make sense enough that someone might think of this at some point right and and i think that's sort of where we kind of got off onto the Well, what is the purpose? One stage of this should make sense in some degree, even if only this. But the rest doesn't have to because it can be accidental. They should
2: have, from the most observed phenomena, sussed out some reasonable explanation for why they exist or how they do. And chances are that outside of certain cultures or groups that breed them, the rest of it would be largely unknown. Yeah, I mean, yeah, in the greatest sense, it's a space whale. Let's (laughs) not ourselves It fits under that genre of or i think actually this is one we didn't talk and we'll just throw it out there for readers who are interested the dragons of pern yes we call them dragons because humans see this thing and go ah that's a dragon but they're an alien creature yeah and their ability to form empathic bonds that can lead to death among other things is not a quality of dragons but it is easier for us to say this is like a thing we know in the world already and therefore, it will have that name as opposed to ridiculous. I think we were talking about uh, nomenclature to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. How do these things get named? And I don't like bringing Scott Card up, but his essay talks about that deeply. Is, uh, I think the example it gives is that one should not call a rabbit a snoop for the sake of providing a differentiator or mm-hmm. making the world seem weird or alien. Right. It's still a
1: fucking rabbit. Mm-hmm. It has like if, if you're going to call it something different? have that say something about the world. Don't yeah. just yeah. have it. Let it you know, be a different thing. Like, like for instance, in in Serenity, when they are swearing in Chinese, the fact that they aren't using recognizable swear words, you don't just make up swear words, but the swearing in Chinese says something. Right. You know, it gives you an indication about a that history. That says
2: what the dominant language was. Mm-hmm. If everyone can acknowledge that term and know, oh, you are angry and this is the type of anger you're expressing.
1: Mm-hmm. It means that, however, humans got here, you know, Chinese were very integral to everything that happened enough mm-hmm. that the they're, they're large chunks of their language, even if it didn't, wasn't the overall dominant language, it was still there mm-hmm. and and strong. And so, if you had a, if there was a reason, if you didn't call it a rabbit but you called it a jackalope, you know, it would say something about what you saw in it.
2: Shadow of the Conciliator said. Sci-fi series with a fascinating sci-fi fantasy series with a fascinating role and a terrible character. Don't read it. It won the Hugo and Nebula Awards. Still don't read it. That doesn't necessarily mean
1: anything.
2: They had a beautiful biological take on how giants existed. They only existed on land as infants. Those large people you met were baby giants. When they became too big, they moved to the ocean. So this is one character, I forget his name even, but halfway through the book, the main character goes, why is he so big? And his companion, a playwright, goes, oh. You know those giants you read about? Yeah, that's a he's a little one. The myths had been thrown out earlier, so like an offhanded reference. Was that, oh, that actually makes far too much sense because they had presumed everything else was like Earth's biology, geography, the physics were the same. Mm. So yeah, a giant couldn't exist here without other things following through naturally. And where do we find our Leviathans? Typically in the water.
1: Pretty much.
2: Unless they're purely made of ego, in which case they (laughs) can persist on land without issue. Parting thoughts, last words.
3: If we believe Descartes, then I only know what I'm thinking when I'm I'm actually thinking about, whether I'm thinking. So So
2: you only exist when you're speaking.
3: Exactly, pretty much. So once my voice stops, you can just assume I'm not existing anymore.
2: Mm -hmm. How do people summon you from now on?
3: They try to get me to speak.
2: In other words, they make a logical fallacy out loud.
3: Yeah, and then boom, I pop right into existence. I'm fallacy man. There's a Saturday Breakfast <laughs> coming about Dawson. <to> <laughs> okay.
2: I I'm envisioning the costume.
3: <laughs> That's so terrible. <laughs> um no, I think I think the interesting thing about biology is that we we started out by distinguishing it between the sort of it has different weird biology and some sort of man-made component. And it's kind of interesting how all of our examples sort of dovetailed into both of those. Yeah. They were almost all always man-made. Either from within the context of the universe, or from in the context of this is an author trying to impute a certain sort of vision onto the world, and there were and we found that both ways, right? It's good when it makes sense, and it's not good when it doesn't make sense. And that's both from a within and out, outside of the story context. If people in a story make a stupid decision and it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense why it led to that way. It's going to be bad. But if the author makes a decision and it's sort of, sort of the same kind of. Clearly, some sort of like doesn't make any sense. Why the author would make that decision? It's also bad. So it seems like both mm-hmm. of those are good ways to, you know, good things to avoid when you're trying to create these new worlds: is characters making stupid
1: decisions, and you know, or putting something in there that clearly doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Basically, when you uh, uh, when you create a mystery, when you create an oddity, you are opening a door in your your readers and in the hearers, the listeners' mind to latch on to something, to say something, if you open that door and then don't say anything, you are going to, you, you are going to seriously damage the connection with, with the story because in one sense you, you've opened that door to, to, the, to, to make them expect that thing. They make them expect that something more will be said. Even if what you're saying is only, Hey, look at how I'm setting the tone. Look at the tone I'm setting for how strange this world is. I mean, I show you this strange creature in the in the very background. It's not going to come up again, but from the, the context you can see, I'm really just establishing that this place right. is alien. You've got to say something. Yeah. If you call a rabbit a smear, or whatever it is, mm-hmm. you've opened that door and said nothing. Yeah. It was a rabbit.
2: Well, one, you have to establish that it's a rabbit. Two, that they're not calling it that, yeah. either because they don't know it's a rabbit, but you do. And that three, there's an important reason why it is no longer called this. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Which is three leaps of logic that I as a reader I'm going, Great, but why? To yeah. be
1: fair, if you had just established that there was some sort of pest called a sphere and never given it any description, you have done less to damage your yeah. story than yeah. to then go you on and say it was just a rabbit. All of its behaviors yeah, it's exactly. rabbit
2: like and people go, Okay.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like a rabbit. Yeah. I think it would be even a cool
3: thoughts voice revealing over the course that it is actually a rabbit or yeah. something about the world that, yeah.
2: Watership Down is a great example of this. They have a whole nomenclature for things in the world that are human manifestations or creations, but they have their own language for it, and you are still quite able to understand what it is, mm-hmm. not just for being human. I guess I would end with this, which is as alien or as odd or weird or mythological as the thing you're describing or the, the narrator or the reader is encountering, Grounded in the experiences that we can perceive, grounded in the senses that we can perceive. Mm -hmm. What is felt? What is seen? What's the taste? Or oddly enough, do you experience it through synesthesia?
1: Or you can even choose, take the, take the beyond the, 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 the the basic five senses because humans have a lot. Sure. Sense of balance sense of kinesthetic awareness where your limbs are if, if you' if something shows up and your characters uh, and and your characters start losing their balance mm. you've said something
2: If something so massive that it pulls them off the ground mm-hmm. if that is the first presentation of its existence they're gonna
1: get vertigo as, as the because their sense of which direction is down has just changed
2: and you have then established that whatever they are about to encounter it is an immensity mm-hmm. and therefore terrifying and awful and alien hmm Where can people find you on, or probably not offline?
1: Well, I am David Herman, a.k.a. Remnesis of the Brothers Herman. I uh, run the the Brothers Herman podcast, Otter Worlds, which is a spinoff of the other Brothers Herman podcast, the Geekly Oddcast.
3: I am Stephen Herman, Snake Eyes of the Brothers Herman. You can find me in downtown Los Angeles. I take 40, 42nd, <laughs> 42nd Street and 3rd Avenue. I assume that's a place in Los Angeles, but there's something there, I, I'm sure.
2: I have a feeling you would cease to exist in LA within a matter of mere moments.
3: <laughs> I don't know why you think that. <laughs> it's a
2: propulsion field around this
3: interior. Online, uh, you can find me off, at this point, mainly uh, taking place in the other Brothers Herman Side Projects, so Outer Worlds um, and uh, Weekly Podcast and stuff like that. But uh, yeah.
2: And I'm your host, Jared Serf. You can find me on the Patreon site, which has my name on it. You can find me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Realist, And one other place I'll plug, but I can't remember it now, so we'll work it in later. Or it'll be in the ending credits, as usual. We're all tired, although this is, oddly enough, earlier than our usual starting time.
1: <laughs> that is true, <laughs> bizarrely. This is very weird, and I don't understand this. Yeah.
2: <laughs> which is why we're probably not as surreal as we could be tonight.
1: Oh yeah, we. I thought it was fairly mundane
2: today. Yeah, Uh, Dave, I'll defer this to you on this. But would you ever call your brother mundane?
3: Fairly mundane,
1: like for me. Okay, (laughs) for you, (laughs) fairly mundane.
2: We will sign off because I think Stephen has just uh, confessed to being a xenomorph. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: Good night, all. So that's all for tonight. If you like what you hear and you want to show your support, you can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash hearmetigers. That's with a Y for a dollar or more. There are all kinds of rewards, including access to our online workshop and Discord. Of course, if you have a story of your own that you'd like to share or have us revise, you can write to us and My name, not my last, and you, me tigers. See you all next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.